think important to say, you know, what we are not doing here is holding up for you what privileged middle-class children are doing. These, these kids are in our more working-class, disadvantaged area. So just in case you think that's what we're doing, it's not. OK, I'm going to move on. And um, we, we've, we have, we've been having regular meetings, obviously, about this, this project, now that we've kind of got through the trauma of doing all the field work and schlepping around the world. And we have these meetings where we kind of all talk at once, and it gets very hard to have a, get a word in. Um, and then we thought, OK, well, we've got, we've got like a whole morning this morning. Oh, my God, what are we going to say? And as you can see, I mean, we've had a lot to say. Um, and there's a lot more where this came from. So it's, uh, it's been good from our point of view. Um, OK, my job, unfortunately, is to try and kind of pull it all together. Um, and I'm trying with this, really, I mean, I'm trying to kind of bite the bullet, really. So I don't want to just give you a whole load of questions to finish off. I'm, I'm going to be a bit kind of assertive and, and prescriptive, really, at times, anyway. Um, and I want to talk about four themes here. We're almost at the end of... This is, uh, this is slide 98. Frightening, <laughs> um, really. OK. Um, I mean, conceptual learning, how kids learn concepts, has been one of the themes running through this, and it's an issue that's come out of other research on, on media education. And as I said, we started with some, some questions about is the conceptual framework that we, that we inherit, is it actually useful? Um, and how do kids take it on board? I think it's pretty clear when you think across those four concepts that we've looked at, there are actually different types of concepts, that some of them are maybe more factual or require more factual knowledge than others. Some of them are maybe more abstract. Some of them are more, are more concrete. Some of them, as we've kind of done this work, they've, they've kind of crumbled in our hands. You know, we've thought, well, actually, what is audience? What is representation? So these are different types of concepts, and they, they you know, it, it's, it's hard to generalise across them. I think a key point that we want to make is that the concepts are not tablets of stone, you know, handed down from the mountain or handed down in the syllabus specifications. That concepts are tools in Vygotsky's sense. They are, they are tools that we can use for learning. They are, if you like, means and not ends. And we need to see, and I would say this is a much broader argument about how, you know, teachers use concepts in many areas, that we need to see concepts not as fixed but as contested, as changing over time. One of the things that we keep talking about, and you all have got, this is a kind of slogan really almost that we've, we've come up with um, over the last few weeks, that you know, the point of this is not that kids are learning theory. You know, it's not that there is a body of theory which is there in the academic books about media and we kind of hand it down in, a, in an acceptable way and then they, you know, they take whoever's model of narrative or, or whatever. The point is, it's not about learning theory, it's about learning to theorise, learning to think about things in, in theoretical ways. Now, now, what does that mean? Well, it means in particular... A, a use of theory as provisional, that it's about one of the things that we're doing in the classroom is testing, interrogating theories or, if you like, generalisations. I mean, a very good example of that was um, the stuff that Becky talked about in Anthony's classroom, where he's using that idea of point of view 
um, but not as a kind of model. You know, here's what so-and-so says about point of view, you know, let's apply it. But actually as a set of, of assertions that can be, or generalisations, that can and should be interrogated. That the students are actually looking at different examples and thinking, well, no, this doesn't quite work. So testing, interrogating theory, and again with Alex, the way of constantly asking those questions, that nothing is given that what, what kids are learning to do is to ask those questions themselves. Now, that involves, I think, a, a, a moving constantly between the concrete and the abstract. Um, and typically, that is the way we think about this, that we'll start with kids' experience, kids' concrete experience, and then we'll gradually somehow kind of move up to abstract generalisation. So in Vygotsky's terms, it's about moving from um, spontaneous concepts, the concepts that kids have... Um, uh, in, in their everyday lives. They form from their everyday experience of media and will gradually kind of systematise those and move those up to scientific concepts. Um, you know, concepts that, that relate to academic theory, academic, critical, conceptual ways of looking at things. I think one of the things that we'd want to say is, well, you know, it doesn't necessarily always have to happen like that and it can actually happen the other way round and there can be some very useful things that happen when we start with the abstract and then move to the, to the concrete. I mean, another example no one's talked about, but um, Jared is here. And Jared, I would say, I can't see where you are. But, but you know, it, both in how he talks about um, representation, uh, sorry, how he talked about institution, but particularly how he talks about audience, I think was a really interesting example of that, starting with something, you know, a, a discussion, almost a kind of thought experiment with the kids, very, at a very kind of philosophical level. And I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, where's, where's this going to go? And actually what he did was to work from the abstract to the concrete. So the abstract, the generalisation gets filled in and in the process gets contested. That was with year five. So, I, you know, I think this can be done. Um, and the other thing I think we wanted to say is that, you know, what we've presented you with is, is for kind of discrete chunks, and of course they all overlap and they all connect, and I think a, a crucial point happens when actually we, we realise, and kids realise, the connections between the concepts, so rather than, you know, we're doing institution, actually studying institution involves questions about audience and representation and language and so on, and these things are very connected, and often the most productive moments in terms of learning are where those connections kind of fall into place. Second theme is around theory and practice. And as we, as we know, this is one of the kind of, you know, the, the, the perennial questions in, in media education. Um, typically thought about, and I think, you know, when you think about these units of work and how they were planned, they did actually tend to go from theory to practice. You'll have noticed a certain kind of pattern that we started with critical analysis and we end up with kids doing some kind of production activity. I guess we'd also want to say there, there should be opportunities to move in the other direction, from practice to theory. And that in a sense, we ought to be thinking here, rather than about taking a theory and then applying it through production work, applying it to practice, actually there's maybe an, an inductive as well as a deductive way of, of building theory. So it's about shifting back and forth between reading and writing. 
or shifting between the position of the audience and the position of the producer. And again, Alex is doing that in, in really quite interesting ways. <laughs> Even when kids are not making stuff, he's getting them to think about, well, you know, how would it be like if you were to make this? You know, how would you, how would you go about this? So that shifting of positions from audience to producer and back again, um, it seems to me is an important opportunity for learning there. We've seen kids working across and between multiple media, or if you like, multiple modes. So we've seen examples of kids drawing, talking, writing, um, making, um, taking photographs, uh, making video. I mean, other stuff we haven't talked about, but kids kind of acting, performing in the classroom. And I think our sense is that that movement across and between modes is, is important, Partly because, you know, some kids are, are going to be more comfortable with some modes than others, although we need to be very wary about the, the essentializing of that. But more generally, that, that moving between modes, that process of kind of translating, if you like, from one mode to another, is again an important um, moment for learning. Throughout all of this, we've talked about, about the importance of a meta-language, a language for talking about language, and even, in some cases, a technical language. You know, we, it, I think we think it's important that kids talk about things like, you know, close-ups and long shots and, and so on. But I think what we do feel is that it's important that that language is not given to them as a kind of, you know, set of, of grammatical terms, if you like it, but it's introduced in a, in a just-in-time why it's introduced at a point where they will find it useful. And we've seen various instances of kids kind of struggling to find a language, struggling to find a way of talking about different camera shots, for example. And it's at that point then, you know, this is very, again, Vygotsky's zone of proximal development. They're looking for a way of, of putting a label on, formalising a certain kind of understanding that's beginning to emerge. And at that point, that's when the meta-language becomes, becomes useful. Simulation, it was very striking actually, kind of having gone through the whole project and then kind of looking at it at the end and thinking, God, there was so much bloody simulation going on there. You know, lots of, lots of simulation. In many ways, I think you could say that when kids, almost whatever kids do in classrooms is simulation. You know, is, is writing in school not in some ways a simulated form of writing? Um, I think what we feel, again, is that this sort of dynamic that I'm talking about um, between action and reflection is really important in, in using simulation. That simulation has to matter. There's a danger of saying, oh, you know, here's a whole load of news stories and go and knock together a news broadcast. Well, actually, if it doesn't matter to kids, if the content doesn't matter, if they don't feel some way about it, if it doesn't connect with their cultural experience, the things they're, they're concerned about with their experience, then actually there's a problem because you could just about do it in any way and, and does anybody care? So it needs to matter, but there also needs to be a distance. And one of the things I think in, on reflection we didn't have enough of and we didn't have time actually to do enough of was that stepping back. That stepping back and saying, okay, well, what went on here? That reflection on the process, once you've, once you've done it, once you've been through this intense experience of, of production, um, even simulated production, then stepping back and thinking about what went on. We talked about in production work balancing creativity and constraint, and a very a range of different um, ways of doing this that we found. Some instances where teachers are working in really quite a kind of controlled way, restricting the options that kids have 
and getting them to work within those options. Other instances where it's been, been much more open. Um, and I think our, our, our sense of that is, well, look, you know, there's no one-size-fits-all model. It's not necessarily the case that you want to start by keeping things nice and tightly focused and then open up. Actually, it can be useful to open things up and see what happens and reflect on it. You know, whether, how constrained you are, um, certainly in production tasks, depends on your aims, depends on motiva- kids' motivations, depends on the, on the context. But the, the key point, in a way, the key point throughout all of this is it needs to be recursive. One of the ideas we've come up with here is developmental media-making. You know, just, just as kids talk about developmental writing, why not talk about developmental media making? Why not think about you know, what kids do in the early stages with cameras or with video cameras? Yes, on one level it's wobbly and it's not, you know, it's not properly composed. and it's not. But actually what they're doing is figuring that out, just as kids are figuring out when they do developmental writing. They're figuring out what this mode of communication can do. So... A way, of, a way of thinking about that. Okay, I'm zipping on there. So, progression. Oh, my God. Um, okay, how do, we, how do we think about this? Well, um, another kind of idea that we've come across is the idea, or that we've, we've come up with, really, is this idea of proto-concepts. That actually, when you listen, as, and, and some of the stuff Mandy and Becky have presented us with, examples of you know, kids talking fairly spontaneously about celebrities or whatever it may be, that in that talk there is a lot of conceptual stuff, conceptual thinking going on. And a key starting point is to actually identify where that's happening and, and, and be able to identify it and, and build on it. But also to challenge it. Um, so the kind of thing that Alex is doing, but several of the other teachers were, were doing as well, asking kids, okay, well, what's the evidence for that? Why are you saying that? You know, can you justify what you're saying? Do you know, okay, you've said that, but actually it doesn't seem to apply in that context. Or how does what you're saying here compare with what's, what's being said over here? You know this, you think you know this, but how do you know it? Yeah? So that process of constantly interrogating and challenging, it seems to me crucial in terms of conceptual development. There are some, I mean, this is, a, this is a question, you know, are there building blocks, for example, in learning media language? Do we think that kids need to know, for example, to take photographs before they take video? Do they need to how, know how to compose shots before they, they think about editing? Um, I think, again, our, our view would be, well, actually, it, that, that is to impose a rather kind of mechanical literacy pedagogy on it, which doesn't actually work. It doesn't allow for that freer space of developmental media making. Are some concepts more difficult than others? I was quite struck actually listening to Mandy and Becky this morning and thinking, actually there are certain areas where we can say, well kids know a lot about this, and then there are other areas where actually it's quite a lot that they don't know. I mean representation, institution, it seems to me part of what Mandy, in talking about that, was drawing attention to, was that there are a certain set of things that kids don't know. Um, And we also found that some of those concepts were more difficult for teachers as well um, to know how to handle. So, you know, there may be... You know, we need to to think a bit about... (coughs) Not just about what kids know and celebrating what kids know and validating what kids know, but also thinking harder about what it is that they don't know. Um, So, yes... I think I keep, I've put the same thing in, in on every slide, but, you know, this sense of a spiral, iterative 
curriculum, where kids are constantly moving back and forth um, bet- between analysis and production. Um, and I think, you know, our big takeaway message, in a sense, we've talked a lot about, as we kind of knew we would, about the primary um, school stuff. And that, for, certainly for me, was new. I've not before this spent a lot of time in primary classrooms. And if there's something I would want to say, it's, well, you know, look at what is happening there. Look at what is possible there. And then think through, okay, well, how would it be if kids did that in year two, three, four, five? And then what would they be doing in years 10 and and 11 and and beyond? And I think a sense that we have, and I mean, this is not about um, teachers. It's not about, well, it's, it's to some extent about exam syllabuses. But the danger that... What happens at the, at the upper end is a somewhat is depressing what kids can achieve, that actually kids could be doing a whole lot more. Um, it would depend upon this being, being built upon, but actually media education, media literacy at a secondary school level could be the very opposite of dumbing down, um, despite Michael Gove. Okay, I'm, I'm almost there. Um, thinking about, about the questions around culture. I mean, yes, I think we make a big deal, and, and you know, this is almost received wisdom. We've got to find ways of accessing, accessing, validating kids' existing preferences. And the schools that were very anxious about celebrities and, and or the school that wanted to do Robin Hood as a kind of acceptable celebrity, you know, I think one of, there is an issue there about, about teachers' anxieties about popular culture that, that really need to be, to be addressed and, and worked with. I mean, there are often very good reasons for those concerns. But actually, if we're going to be teaching about this area, we can't be teaching about, about some sort of sanitised version of it. We actually need to be teaching about stuff that is, as we've shown, part of kids' cultural experiences. Uh, there are interesting questions about, um, and we could probably talk with the, the teachers who are here, about how teachers bring their own cultural preferences into the classroom. And Andrew talked about that. I, I think we saw some very interesting things going on of, of teachers who were completely comfortable with that, completely cool with saying, you know, oh, yeah, wasn't it good on the X Factor last night, or whatever. Teachers who actually kind of wanted to avoid it, really, that it was all a bit kind of awkward. Teachers who did it in a sort of ironical kind of way, um, you know, oh, I'm an old person, this is what we old people like. Or back in the day when we used to like... You know, various ways in which teachers, teachers negotiated that. Various ways in which it, it, it could be possible. I'm, I'm not looking at anybody in particular. But, you know, you, you, it might be an interesting thing to think about. The different styles with which teachers were able to bring in their cultural preferences. This idea of the third space that Andrew um, talked about. This idea of kind of in, an encounter between kids... And teachers, I think it is. It is not straightforward. It's not a kind of cosy space, it, and particularly when we're talking about social differences, as we have been across these different sites. On one level, I think we could say we've seen lots of examples of this of teachers expanding kids' cultural repertoires. That actually there are ways in which media education can also be about kids encountering the unfamiliar. You know, it can actually be about year three kids in, in Croydon watching Nosferatu. You know, that, that is possible. Um, I, I think there's a question, though, when we put that together with the issue of progression. I mean, can we think about cultural progression? Can we think about kids getting a, a gradually wider repertoire of cultural experiences? Is that a valid aim for, for media education? It's very problematic. 
Questions about taste are tied up with questions about identity, questions about power. Um, they are personal and political, controversial, in, in difficult sorts of ways. Um, I don't think it's about giving kids access to a canon of great media texts. I think in some ways, again, carrying forward the argument about interrogation, it's a way of partly, yes, expanding kids' repertoire, showing them different stuff, but also interrogating as you do that. Why is it that some things are differently valued from other things? It's actually about asking that question. Okay, I'm, I'm really going to finish. And, you know, where does it all go in terms of... of policy going forwards, as the civil servants say. Well, I think, I think we would want to make a pretty strong argument here for, yes, revisiting and renewing the key concepts, but a, a view of conceptual learning as being the core of what media education is about is one I, I would certainly be, still be signing up to. I think there are issues we've encountered and, and implicitly um, throughout all of this. There are questions about teacher training and questions about teacher subject knowledge. The kind of thing that we're talking about is not going to be easy for teachers who don't have training in it. Um, it's, not going to be, it's not something that anybody can do just because we all watch telly, we can all teach about it. Well, no, actually, if you're going to be able to understand what's going on in terms of kids... Um, conceptual understanding, if you're going to be able to engage with that, actually you need to know a lot. Not that you need to be leading them down a particular road in a particular direction and you know what the destination is, but you need to be seeing the opportunities. And that depends upon um, in-depth training and, and in-depth knowledge. I mentioned the elephant in the room and I will mention it again and maybe this is something we come back to. But, you know, actually what are we talking about assessing here? We've, we've talked a lot here about conceptual learning, if you like, critical thinking, perhaps critical practice, you know, but fine to say, but actually, at the end of the day, how, how do we assess that, and how do we assess it in ways that don't involve just imposing very limited rubrics and, and, um, and sets of things, sets of checklists and things that we're looking for? Um, as I've said, I think a fear that we would have that existing checklists for doing that, curriculum specifications, may be depressing learning and may lead to depressing learning, um, particularly at the top end of, of secondary school. Um, and just to, to finish, I mean, I, and again, this may be something that we want to come back to in our final discussion. Well, how does any of what we've talked about today relate to the, the stuff I started with? You know, talk about media literacy, technology creativity, how does it relate to how literacy is being talked about in English, how might it relate to other areas. Um, the schools we worked in were actually media, the secondary schools were media arts schools. Now what does it mean if we locate media in an arts context? On the other hand, several of the concepts, institutions, representation, are really social scientific concepts, I would argue.